0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance has revealed that his office's two-year investigation into President Trump may be far broader than initially thought. In court papers, New York prosecutors suggested they may be investigating potential bank and insurance fraud by Trump and his company citing news reports that Trump illegally inflated his net worth and the value of his properties to lenders and insurers. That's well beyond the focus on hush money payments that Vance's office had previously acknowledged. Prosecutors cited public reports of possibly extensive and protracted criminal conduct at the Trump Organization to justify the subpoena for Trump's financial records, asking the judge to throw out Trump's latest effort to block the subpoena. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Jessica, what was revealed about the extent of Vance's investigation in the papers filed this week? So District Attorney Vance confirmed in his latest filing that he is pursuing a broad investigation
1: into President Trump, his associates and his corporate entities that's not confined to the so-called hush money payments made by Michael Cohen, and that that investigation may include possible bank fraud and insurance fraud and other kinds of criminal conduct. That was not new, however. I mean, the district attorney has said in previous filings, including in his brief in the U.S. Supreme Court, that his investigation involved business transactions involving multiple individuals and corporate entities, and was based on information derived from various sources, and that one of the aspects of the investigation related to the so-called hush money payment. But he has certainly suggested in previous filings that the investigation went beyond the hush money payment. The most recent filing confirmed that.
0: Is Vance necessarily investigating those topics, or could this just have been a broad suggestion about what's out there? We don't know for sure what
1: he's investigating. What he has confirmed only is the hush money payments by saying that that is one of the areas of his investigation. But you're right that he has not committed himself publicly to the precise scope of the investigation for the matters within it, and he has relied on publicly available sources of sort of leads and reasons to justify an investigation into those areas, but been very careful not to confirm any particular area as being a subject of his investigation. There is a declaration that one of his prosecutors had filed with the district court that is filed at least partly under seal that based on what's been said in the briefs and in the district court opinion, we know there are parts of that declaration, again, that are under seal, that do go in detail into the scope of the investigation.
0: When you're making your case before the Supreme Court, why not reveal the entire extent of the investigation in order to sort of cover the extent of the subpoenas, which is pretty broad? Well, one reason has to
1: do with grand jury secrecy rules. So the district attorney is bound by New York law to keep secret matters occurring before the grand jury. And so he has to be mindful of those laws and be very careful about revealing exactly what he is putting before the grand jury. The hush money payments. when talking about the publicly available information about other kinds of misconduct that's been alleged at the Trump Organization, looking to those publicly available accounts sort of enables him to talk about those subject areas without going into precisely what's before the grand jury. So I think that's important. And it also doesn't confine him by having committed in any public way or in a representation to a court to a precise scope of the investigation.
0: Many people might think, after hearing the Supreme Court ruled on this in Cy Vance's favor, might think this will settle the matter. So tell us what the Supreme Court ruled on and why this is still going on.
1: So the Supreme Court ruled on some very important legal arguments, including whether the president of the United States is absolutely immune from any investigation by a state grand jury into conduct that involves him as a private citizen from before he became president of the United States. That was a very important and novel legal question, but the court did not go further than that. So it sent it back to the district court to consider specific claims about why this particular subpoena was the kind of subpoena that should not be enforced, the kinds of arguments that any person who was subject to a subpoena could make, even if they weren't president of the United States. For example, that it is unduly burdensome to comply with, that it was based on bad faith On the part of the prosecutor, that it is completely unrelated to any matter legitimately within the scope of the grand jury's investigation. Those are obviously a very hard burden to meet. And in the case of the president of the United States, the Supreme Court also said in considering whether or not the the subpoena was unduly burdensome, the district court could consider the particular burden on a sitting president. So if the compliance with the subpoena would unduly interfere with his ability to perform his duties as president of the United States. So it's these kinds of particularized specific claims that the Supreme Court sent the case back to the district court to consider.
0: What are Trump's legal arguments in this latest effort to block the subpoena? This time he has
1: not made those broad legal claims of immunity. He has focused on the matters that the Supreme Court said he essentially should focus on in the district court. But he has not put forward much that's new, that he had not previously included in his papers Speaking to quash the subpoena. He's saying, again, that it is, uh, the subpoena is overbroad, that it is issued in bad faith. And, and those were claims that he made before. They just weren't considered by the Supreme Court. But they were considered by the district court the first time around, in addition to the legal claim of immunity. And the, the first time around, the district court was not very sympathetic to those arguments. The district court found no evidence of bad faith on the part of the district attorney, did not find the penas were unduly burdensome. And so the question is, is there anything new that Trump is saying this time around on any of those counts? I don't see anything new in the amended complaint and the new filing that suggests that Trump is going to fare better this time in the district court.
0: Well, that's what struck me because the judge wrote a 75 page opinion last October, rejecting the president's claims. And it seems as if there's nothing really new there that would lead him to rule differently. I did not see anything new either. I think if,
1: if we're really looking for something arguably new in the Trump filing this time around, I believe it's new that he talked about the subpoena calling for some information about entities outside of New York. I think he may have said for the first time some conduct within the scope of the subpoena or arguably covered by the materials requested in the subpoena, maybe that's beyond the statute of limitations. And the district attorney responded to those claims by saying that Trump is misunderstanding the scope of New York's jurisdiction and also misunderstanding the application of the statute of limitations in the case of an ongoing course of conduct. So I think those may have been some specific things that were new in the amended complaint. But there really wasn't much that was new.
0: One of the arguments the district attorney is making is that if this keeps playing out longer and longer, that the statute of limitations could expire. But has he pointed to any specific statute that he's looking at that would expire? No,
1: I I have not seen him do so. But that goes back, I think, to part of our earlier conversation about how he's been very careful not to commit to any particular statute or crimes that are the subject of his investigation. Um, In general, in New York, for felonies, it's a five-year statute of limitations. So he clearly would be concerned, I think, about getting close to that next year. But again, if the conduct were ongoing, that would extend the statute of limitations so it wouldn't start running until the last acts that were part of that course of conduct had occurred. Um, But I think he's raising that concern without pinning himself down to any particular act committed by any particular individual or entity or any statute uh, that is the focus of his investigation.
0: It seems that President Trump is just litigating, litigating, litigating to run out the clock until the November election. Is there any way that he will be able to run out the clock in this case? Well, as you know, litigation is
1: slow going. (laughs) And so um, even once this case is decided again by the district court, there is the prospect of an appeal to the Second Circuit and even potentially a petition uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, Vance has signaled that he is not inclined uh, to wait much longer in terms of seeking to enforce the subpoena. And so if he Prevails in the district court again. I think the question going forward will be: Would any court grant a stay of enforcement of this subpoena, um, such that he won't get the records within some reasonable period of time? To get a stay, you need to show usually some reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. This does not. I, mean, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. If the district court rules in Vance's favor, for many of the reasons we've been talking about, how there doesn't seem to be much new here. It seems like. Trump would be carrying a very high, it would be a hard burden uh, for them to meet to show, to meet the standard necessary for a stay. So Vance may well get the records within some reasonable period of time. But again, those will be subject to grand jury secrecy rules. So he may be able to continue his investigation, getting those documents in some reasonable period of time, but those will not be available to the public for many, many months. And that would only be if the district attorney files charges and then these documents become exhibits in a trial. So we're many steps away from the prospect of the documents in question that have been the subject of all of this litigation being available to the public.
0: You mentioned the Supreme Court. Would the Supreme Court ever take this case again after it ruled in the case? It seems extremely unlikely to me that they
1: would. Uh, we are going to be talking about some very... Uh, fact-based, specific rulings um, by the district court that don't involve broad legal principles like the first round of litigation here did. So it seems to me that it'd be very, very unlikely that they would take it again.
0: After the district judge makes his ruling, does the Second Circuit have to take the case again if it's appealed?
1: Yeah, so appeal is of right to the Second Circuit, but that doesn't mean the Second Circuit has to prolong it. Uh, They can expedite the briefing. They can issue what's called a summary order, if they wish, as opposed to a full lengthy opinion. So it's within their discretion to dispose of the case in a summary way on an expedited schedule.
0: Tell us about the papers that have to be filed before the judge makes his ruling in this case. So what remains to be done on remand um, is
1: Trump will file a brief in opposition to District Attorney Vance's motion to dismiss, uh, the Trump complaint. And that deadline is August 10th. And then after that brief is filed by President Trump, District Attorney Vance has a few more days until August 14th to file a reply brief. And then the case will be fully submitted before the district court. And the district court would, will rule. One imagines he will rule fairly expeditiously here. Um, again, because he has considered these issues before and ruled on them. So we don't know an exact timeline. There's no statutory or other requirement that he decides within any particular period of time. But um, I imagine we would get a ruling fairly
0: soon. Thank you for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jessica. That's former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. Judge Esther Salas is calling for more security for federal judges after a shooter killed her son and wounded her husband at their New Jersey home. The judge posted an emotional video on YouTube on Monday calling for a national dialogue to find a solution to keeping federal judges' personal information, like addresses, off the Internet. My family has experienced a pain that no one should ever have to endure. And I am here asking everyone to help me ensure that no one ever has to experience this kind of pain. We may not be able to stop something like this from happening again. But we can make it hard for those who target us to track us down. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Madison, tell us a little more about the judge's video. So
2: this is really the first time uh, Judge Esther Salas has come out and spoken about the attack on her family and the murder of her son. And uh, it was a really emotional, um, you know, nine minute long video where she is uh, discussing how the attack went down, um, you know, those moments, those last few moments with her son. Uh, and. Um, She ends up having a call for action uh, during the video where she is is really urging people in power uh, to make more uh, an effort for more security for, for federal judges. And the form that she would like that to take is more security for personal information that is accessible online, like your address. Uh, Like other information about you, she says that, uh, you know, the shooter had a a dossier on her and her family
0: um, that that they used to, to track them down. Does she suggest any solution? Because it seems like it would be really difficult in this day and age to protect basic information about a person, you know, whether a judge or a layman.
2: She so she notes that you know she says that she's not really sure how this could actually happen. Um, you know she's if this is a suggestion, uh, but this is something else that uh, was also mentioned to me by the former administrator and chief inspector of the U.S. Marshals Service of uh, the, the area that that deals specifically with judicial security. His name is John Muffler, and he also said um, in you know our conversation after the attack that cyber the cyber realm is the next area that. Um, needs to be protected for judges. And he, too, admitted that he's not quite sure, you know, where that would go from here and what the roadblocks might be. Um, But it's something that seems to be a consensus in the legal community that this needs to be an area to look into.
0: The last time it seems that there was a move to protect judges was 2005. Tell us what happened Mm then. So in 2005
2: um judge uh joan humphrey Lefko. uh she had her family was uh, attacked targeted and and murdered and uh congress responded to to that event by uh, approving about 12 million dollars to fund the installation and upkeep of home security systems for federal judges uh and that That it kind of created a foundation for that kind of, of security system, so it's not completely unprecedented that uh, Congress has taken action before and and further protected federal judges after
0: uh, an attack like this. Turning to another uh, topic, so all thirteen federal appeals courts are live streaming oral arguments compared to four prior to the pandemic. How has that been going? And is it live stream video or just live stream audio?
2: So it's been going well. It's just live stream audio for now, very similar to the way that the Supreme Court did it uh, very famously during this term, allowed public access via live stream for the first time. Other courts are are doing that same thing. And uh, before the pandemic, uh, there were only two doing it regularly and then two others that did it occasionally. Um, The two that did it regularly are the DC Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit provides video on a regular basis. Um, But most of the ones that have added it during the pandemic are, you know, they've got a call-in line. They have a live stream on YouTube that's available during the argument only. um, And then it's, you know, removed later and and stored for access on the website at a later date. Uh, But these live streams are allowing public access to these proceedings in a, a more widespread way than, than we've ever seen. And uh, advocates told us this is something that they would like to see going forward. Uh, you know, even uh, Elizabeth Perret, who is the circuit executive for the D.C. Circuit, uh, she told me that uh, it, there's an expectation now that if you can do it, why not do it? Uh, so that's the question that I think that these appeals courts are going to have to answer when, when the pandemic comes to a close, whenever that may be, uh, is if you can do
0: this in the first place, why, why would
2: you eliminate it?
0: Any idea of the numbers for some of the bigger arguments?
2: So we actually have seen uh, a few numbers from different courts during this time period. And uh, the D.C. Circuit in June had two pretty major arguments, one involving Hillary Clinton's emails and the other one involving Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. And those attracted 89,000 and 92,000 listeners, respectively. That's compared to about 2,000 to 3,000 listeners that would listen to big cases before the pandemic. Remember, the D.C. Circuit was one of the courts that had this access before the the pandemic. So that engagement is something that the the D.C. Circuit is is saying might actually uh, carry over to after the pandemic, that people might be interested in these kinds of proceedings now that they know that this access is available and that courts can do this.
0: Have any of the circuit courts actually committed to continuing this after the pandemic? Besides the ones that are already doing it, no court is really committed to continuing it after the pandemic
2: so far. But they're not saying no; they are, they are thinking about this. Um, you know, we talked to eight of the thirteen appeals courts, and we got various responses. You know, saying that they'll look into this after the pandemic; that it's something that they're thinking about; that it's something that all of the judges will have to have a discussion on. They'll be the ones ultimately making the decision here. But it's not off the table. It's something that while there might not be a court saying, yes, for sure, we will do this after the pandemic, it's certainly something that's on their mind.
0: We all know about the Supreme Court oral arguments and how that went, which really most people say was good except for the one, the toilet flush that right. was heard around <laughs> the country. So is it Supreme Court likely to continue with the oral arguments, live streaming, audio, or perhaps even video? Again, I think it's like the,
2: the appeals courts. It is hard to to know for sure right now. It's something that has a lot of support from both advocates of court access, people in the legal community uh, really want to see this access go going forward. But it's a decision that ultimately the courts are going to have to make. And uh, the courts are, are really an institution that uh, is, slightly adverse to modernization, and this pandemic has really forced not just the Supreme Court, but even all of the lower courts to confront uh, that uh, that tendency to, to not want to modernize, and uh, they've, they've adopted these procedures, uh, both in the use of virtual uh, teleconferencing and live streaming audio, uh, working remotely, that uh, they, they might not have beforehand, and it's really forced the courts into a new era, uh, and, and maybe we'll see some of that going forward.
0: Of course, the Supreme Court justices seem almost uniformly to be against cameras in the Supreme Court, and even some of them, for example, Justice Elena Kagan, during the confirmation hearings, they say, oh, yes, I'm open to cameras, but then as soon as they get on the bench – they're not open to cameras anymore, so it seems like cameras might might take a while, at least at the Supreme Court. Right. I think
2: I think the cameras, uh, you know, are a sensitive subject, just because for for judges, they don't want uh, these, they don't want the hearings, they don't want the the legal process to become too much of, uh, you know, reality television, um. And, and I think that is a fear among judges and, and maybe among the Supreme Court justices that that that, uh, that, that would happen if, if cameras were adopted in the courtroom. Uh, you know, but, but advocates, you know, conversely say that that kind of an access is, you know, it, it beneficial to uh, people who wouldn't be able to come to the court in the first place. You know, the Supreme Court... Uh, people line up overnight to, to just go in and be able to see the justices in action. There's a limited number of seats in there. I've sat in there before. It is fairly crowded. <laughs> so I, I think advocates are, are just looking for more people to be able to experience that part of the legal system.
0: Have any trial courts, federal trial courts, let's say, done streaming, or is it just the appellate courts?
2: So trial courts are doing some, uh, some live streaming, yes. Uh, with some kinds of arguments. And, and state courts are as well. Um, a couple of state courts have actually reported an uptick in their engagement too. Uh, Hawaii's Supreme Court did its first ever remote oral arguments over a water rights case. Uh, and and that was something that people were able to tune into and, uh, you know, be a part of that process during the pandemic. And then the Michigan Court of Claims I had a hearing uh, in, in relation to the governor's emergency powers, and, and that had almost 50,000 views, according to that court. Um, so we're seeing the, this engagement spread uh, across the country in, in these areas where cases have adopted
0: live streaming. Turning to another, yet another topic, I want to talk about the screening commissions to vet judicial picks because, first of all, tell us what, what these screening commissions are, what they do. So
2: screening commissions are something that a senator can establish to help them vet nominees that they might be able to forward to the White House and the president will then nominate for a judgeship. Um, They have long been used in this process as a way for senators to find a pick that they and the White House might be able to agree on and is someone that is a good candidate who has the respect of the legal community Oftentimes, these committees are made up of of lawyers and and others in the legal community who might be able to identify and and vet these candidates. Um, These these committees can take different forms. Um, They can can be varying sizes. Uh, It's really up to the senator's discretion. But recently, uh, there have been a few groups that have Taken a look at these committees and and said, you know, we don't want these in the process anymore uh, because they don't produce the type of nominee that we would like to see, and in terms of diversity uh, and you know, in in terms of of, of ideology. So um, these these groups, including Demand Justice, um, Alliance for Justice, uh, Liberal Think Tank, People's Policy Project, are are taking a look at these committees and. Uh, you know, it, it's something that could potentially be uh, the next casualty we're seeing in the
0: increasingly partisan uh, judicial wars. How do they want the judicial vetting to go? What do they want to happen? So
2: I think what they're wanting is there, there's there's kind of two areas that I've seen uh, there. The demand justices of the world and, and people's policy projects want to Uh, These committees to go away people's policy project in a recent study of Democrats use of these committees where the committees are are more popular um, They they said that they're not salvageable that they don't believe that they'll be able to be used going forward Um, Alliance for justice is also looking for more change in these committees potentially paying more attention to membership um, getting more people from a diverse cross-section of the legal community uh, in the selection committees uh excuse me screening committees and uh they're not really looking for them to go away um the reality of the process and you know they're not really going to go anywhere in in their in their opinion uh so you know it's it's kind of uh, it's, it's really going to depend on on what the senators ultimately think though so. um, you know this is something that, that is up to them and uh, they can be useful in states where senators have quite a few nominations that they need to be thinking about nominees for they need to be vetting people for um, so you know it, it ultimately be- ultimately be up to them if they decide
0: to either change the membership of the committee or if they uh, disband them entirely. It seems like a, an answer would be to change the membership, to make the membership more diverse racially and ethnically, but also diverse as far as opinions and, you know, the degree of a liberal commitment. Right. Yes,
2: that is really a suggestion that, uh, you know, the, the committees become more diverse and reflects the legal community. Um, I did speak to one professor, though, at BYU, uh, Richard Davis, who says that, uh, you know, this is something that if the committees are completely disbanded, the solution is potentially relying on outside groups or, or even other politicians to help with judicial nominations, which he said could also be problematic. It's an area in which I think senators are confronted with a few different choices and there's a lot to, for them to take into account uh, in in terms of of what these groups
0: are are asking for and, and what their own what their own preference might be. In your article, wasn't Senator Dick Durbin, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, praising his committee recently in the process? So yes, Senator
2: Richard Durbin of Illinois and Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio are two Democrats who have recently. Praise their committees before the Senate Judiciary Committee when there are nominees to their states that they support. They say these committees really help them out. Senator Durbin, he's had a process in place like this in, in all of his years in the Senate, and that spans multiple presidential administrations. And so he is saying that this has been a good system for him because in his state, there is a process by which The president's party picks three of four nominees and the minority party picks the other one. So it's this negotiated deal between the the senators to be able to advance nominees. And likewise, Brown also is saying that he's selecting a diverse committee. He and, and Portman, who is the other senator in Ohio and is a Republican, are working together to advance these nominees. So some
0: Democratic senators are saying it's working for them. Thanks, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.